Candler in 1992. His research concerns the literary, moral, and religious dimensions of the New Testament, including the Jewish and Greco-Roman context of early Christianity, Luke Acts, the pastoral letters, and the letter of James. A prolific author, and this really is prolific, Johnson has penned 31 books, more than 70 scholarly articles, 100 popular articles, and nearly 200 book reviews. His 1986 book, The Writings of the New Testament and Interpretation, now in its third edition, is widely used as a textbook in seminaries and departments of religion throughout the world. His 2011 publication, Prophetic Jesus, Prophetic Church, The Challenge of Luke Acts to Contemporary Christians, is the theme of this year's Holy Week speaker series, which Professor Johnson will begin today with this morning's forum, Prophecy as Putting the Body Where the Mouth Is. I'm going to let him explain that one. But please help me welcome Professor Luke Timothy Johnson back to All Saints today. It's the microphone. Let's see. Here we go. Put it on short, man. <laughs> Good morning. Can you hear me okay? I'm very glad to be here with you again at All Saints for the first two days of Holy Week, uh, which when each year the church enters deeply into the mystery of salvation through the death and resurrection of Jesus. I've been asked today and tomorrow to speak on Jesus um, as prophet, as portrayed by the evangelist Luke. This morning, um, the title is Putting the Body Where the Mouth Is, and tomorrow my theme is Speaking Truth in the face of deceit. Both of these topics, I think, are aspects of prophecy as Luke understands prophecy, and both are central to his portrayal of Jesus' last days. I'll talk about a half hour, and I hope that we'll have time for questions and discussion if you are so moved. On Palm Sunday, as I saw all around me as I came in this morning, the church liturgically reenacts Jesus' entry as king into Jerusalem. This event, as we all know, precipitates the final period of conflict with religious and political authorities that leads to Jesus' crucifixion, a distinctively Roman mode of execution that the empire reserved for slaves and for those that the empire wanted to mark and mock as slaves, like Jewish, messianic, and prophetic pretenders. The most shameful of all deaths in antiquity is the instrument of our salvation. How does Luke account for such a death being inflicted on Jesus? As a way of getting into that question, I propose this morning to consider side by side and together the image of Jesus as prophet and king. 
Let's start with prophecy, which means putting your body where your mouth is. Put your money where your mouth is, we say, when we want someone to show how serious they are about something. It might be a basketball game. It might be the NCAA basketball brackets. It might be a political contest. Put up or shut up, we say. We think speech is not really serious when it doesn't have some risk attached to it. Could be our money, could be our home, could be our life. We recognize people as prophets because they put their bodies on the line and not just their speech. Think only of the last century. Mahatma Gandhi peacefully resisted the power of the mighty British Empire with his marches and his strikes. And for his efforts, he was assassinated. Martin Luther King learned peaceful resistance from Jesus and from Gandhi. He was attacked and imprisoned and finally also assassinated. Daniel and Philip Berrigan peacefully protested the Vietnam War and spent years in prison. Dorothy Day ladled out her life in soup spoons to the derelicts of the Bowery in New York City and died as poor as the people she served. Real prophets do more than write opinion pieces in the New Yorker or pontificate to captive students. Prophets embody what they profess, even at peril to themselves. Their words bear weight because their bodies are on the line, backing up their words. But what can it mean to call Jesus prophet king? First, let's recognize that Luke's gospel really, really wants us to see Jesus' entry into Jerusalem on what we call Palm Sunday as a royal procession. Alone of the evangelists, Luke immediately places before this entry a long parable that Jesus tells his disciples who were wondering, is the kingdom of God going to appear now? We call it the parable of the pounds. And in Matthew's gospel, we call it the parable of the talents. You remember it? In Matthew, it's all about money and the use of money. But in Luke, it's really a kingship parable. It is the story of a king who is rejected by his subjects and finally triumphs. Jesus tells this parable right before he enters the city. Luke alone has Jesus explicitly called king by his followers as he approaches Jerusalem. Luke alone at the Last Supper has Jesus compare himself to earthly kings and bestow 
kingly authority, Basileia, over the 12 tribes of Israel on those who sit with him at table. In Luke's gospel alone, when Jesus is crucified under the ironic title, King of the Jews, when a repentant rebel turns to him and says, remember me when you enter your kingdom, Jesus responds, today you will be with me in paradise. Without doubt, Luke wants us to regard Jesus as king. But what kind of king? To learn the character of Jesus' kingship, we have to go all the way back to the very beginning of Jesus' ministry in Luke's gospel. You can remember that when Jesus is baptized, the Holy Spirit descends on him, Luke says, bodily. And then, full of the Spirit, he is led by the Spirit, the redundancy is Luke's, out into the wilderness to be tested by Satan. The chosen Son of God meets the Prince of Darkness. Satan takes him up on a high mountain and shows him all the kingdoms of the earth and offers Jesus rule over them all. The only thing Jesus has to do is bend the knee to Satan, who we understand has all these despotisms at his disposal. Quoting the book of Deuteronomy, Jesus responds, you shall worship the Lord your God. Him alone shall you serve. Jesus refuses to be the sort of king, Luke tells us, who will exercise visible rule over human empires. He utterly rejects that kind of dominance. He will serve only the one who rules all creation and will serve that one by serving those whom God makes and moves in mysterious ways. Now leaving that wilderness setting, Jesus makes his way full of the spirit to his hometown synagogue of Nazareth and there announces that God has anointed him with the spirit and that he has been sent to proclaim good news to the poor and liberty to captives. In effect then, Jesus is presented by Luke as a prophetic king. His rule is in service to the world's most needy. So when Jesus goes about Galilee, as Luke says, proclaiming the good news of the kingdom of God, this is his first public statement on the kingdom. Blessed are you who are poor, for the kingdom of God is yours. He also declares blessed those who are hungry and who weep, those who are hated, excluded, insulted, and denounced as evil. For, Jesus says, their ancestors treated the prophets that way. 
The rule of God that Jesus preaches, therefore, even in its words, is deeply paradoxical. It is not to consist in the domination or exploitation of lands and peoples. It is not to increase the privilege of, that, of those who already enjoy power and wealth. Rather, it is to explicitly embrace the poor and the grieving and the dispossessed. And because of that embrace, it itself will be excluded and mocked in the way that the prophets of old were excluded and mocked. The proclamation of Jesus' kingdom also has a sharp negative edge, for Jesus also declares a lamentation corresponding to that blessing of the poor. Woe to you who are rich, for you have your consolation already. And this, woe to you when everybody speaks well of you. For their ancestors treated the false prophets the same way. As his mother Mary had sung before his birth, God's mercy to the lowly entails casting down the mighty from their thrones and sending the rich away empty-handed. Jesus' first prophetic proclamation of God's kingdom does not end with these blessings and woes. Here are his next words. These are the words which we, his followers, need to ponder always deeply within our heart. For if they were to be taken seriously, even by we few here this morning, they could overturn all the measures by which power is exercised and expressed within human kingdoms. Here are the words that summarize in Luke's Sermon on the Plain, the prophet's understanding of the kingdom. To you who hear, I say this, love your enemies. Do good to those who hate you. Bless those who curse you. Pray for those who mistreat you. To the person who strikes you on the cheek, turn the other one as well. And from the person who steals your cloak, do not withhold even your tunic. Give to everyone who asks of you. And from the one who takes what is yours, do not demand it back. Do to others as you would have them do to you. For if you love those who love you, what credit is it to you? Even the sinners love those who love them. And if you do good to those who do good to you, what credit is it to you? Even sinners do good the same way. If you lend money from those from whom you expect repayment, what credit is it to you? Even sinners give to sinners 
and get back the same amount. But rather, love your enemies and do good to them and lend expecting nothing back. Then your reward will be great. Then you will be children of the Most High. For he himself is kind and merciful to the ungrateful and to the wicked. Be merciful as your Father is merciful. You know, we grow up so seduced by the Sermon on the Mount in Matthew's Gospel that we forget to look at Luke's version. This is it. This is the whole, this is it, what he just said. It is stark. It is demanding. But now we need to ask, how does Jesus put his body where his mouth is concerning this vision of God's kingdom? He does so Luke's narrative shows us by putting himself at the disposal, not of the rich and the powerful, but of the poor, the demon-possessed, the ritually unclean, the ill, the dying. He associates with women, children, all those regarded by the ancient elite as not worthy of attention, much less service. Jesus touches and is touched by all those who, in his society, others mock, insult, injure, and exclude, because in their eyes, in the eyes of the cultural and political and religious elite, they do not really count. Of all ancient figures, of all ancient figures about whom we know anything, for example, Jesus is the only one who saw children as children. No one else did. But Jesus held them in his arms. And he declared that the very measure of God's kingdom was the reception and care of children. Let me restate that. The way that we receive children is the way that we receive the kingdom of God. He says this in all seriousness and in the face of what we have all experienced, that children are, economically speaking, the most obvious drag on adult self-preoccupation. Children take and do not give back. They drain our resources without replenishing them. They sap adult energies that might have gone to building bridges or writing dissertations. Children represent the kingdom of God because they are the least valuable uh, asset in the portfolio of the elite. But what Jesus proclaims, he embodies. Bring me the children. As for loving those who hate you, Jesus repeatedly eats at table, not simply with the tax collectors and the sinners who love him and want to eat with him, 
He sits at table as well with those who were among the religious elite, the very ones who rejected his prophetic posture, who hated, mocked, insulted, sought to exclude, and finally sought to kill him. Precisely because serving the simple needs of the people is so great a challenge to those who consider the role of such people to be one of serving them and their needs. As Jesus approaches the city of Jerusalem then this morning, he is hailed as king, not by the hundreds of thousands of pilgrims who throng the city for the great feast of Passover, but by by the whole multitude of his followers, that undoubtedly little band that had loyally followed him from Galilee to the city of David. They cry out, blessed is the king who comes in the name of the Lord, peace in heaven and glory in the highest. And we hear the echo of the announcement at Jesus' birth to the shepherds in the field concerning that child born in the stench of a stable among those who could find no better lodging. Today in the city of David, a savior has been born for you who is both Messiah and Lord, the shepherds are told, and the angelic choir sings glory to God in the highest and on earth peace to those on whom his favor rests. We are reminded, however, that Jesus has now put his body right on the threshold of deadly danger by entering into the place where all the kingdoms run by the rule of Satan intermingle, the center of religious and political rule, the home of the establishment. The Pharisees, in fact, immediately demand of him that he silence his disciples' cry. And Jesus answers, if his disciples were silenced, then the very stones would cry out. And then in another passage unique to Luke, found only in Luke's gospel, Jesus from the Mount of Olives gazes on the city that he is about to enter and he begins to weep. And he speaks prophetically, if this day you only knew what makes for peace, but now it is hidden from you, for the days are coming on you when your enemies will raise a palisade against you, they will encircle you and hem you in on all sides. They will smash you to the ground and your children within you. And they will not leave one stone upon another because you did not recognize the time of your visitation. Then Luke has Jesus bring his body to the place where his prophetic challenge to the corruption of the world's kingdoms would be most visible and most provocative, the magnificent temple, which was at the same time the holiest of places and the most lucrative of marketplaces. Then he entered the temple area, Luke says, and proceeded to drive out 
those who were selling things, saying to them, my father's house should be a house of prayer, but you have made it a den of thieves. We remember, as perhaps some of them seeing Jesus remembered, that even as a boy, Jesus had caused a similar commotion in that same temple area and had declared to his parents, desperately seeking him, why are you seeking me? Don't you understand that I must be about my father's business? The entire logic of Jesus' prophetic mission leads directly to this moment of protest against a kingdom run on the basis of merchandising. A protest in the name of a kingdom whose members pray with empty pockets, the prayer that Jesus himself taught them, Father, holy be your name. Your kingdom come. Give us each day our daily bread. Forgive us our sins, for we forgive those who are in debt to us. And do not lead us into the final testing. What Jesus does in the temple precincts, after all, is just a gesture, just a prophetic gesture. He simply puts his body where his mouth is. It is like young black students sitting at the all-white soda fountain in the Walgreens drugstore in Jackson, Mississippi in the 50s. It's like a simple march across Selma Bridge. It's like pouring animal blood over nuclear warheads. It's just a gesture. But depending on where the body language occurs, it can signify, it can arouse, it can even stir the beginnings of change. For this very reason, it is rightly perceived by the powers that be as a serious threat. Jesus' entry into the city as a prophet king and his putting his body where his mouth was in the city that was home to his enemies ensured that he would, like the prophets before him and the prophets after him, need to be eliminated. But we who gather still in his name and proclaim him as our Lord, we need to carry as etched in our hearts the words that he spoke to his disciples at his last meal before his death, the death that was the very embodiment of his message. At that last meal, just when Jesus was sharing the bread as his body given for them, and his blood as the new covenant. At that very moment, his followers break into an argument over who is going to be the greatest among them. And Jesus says, the kings of the Gentiles rule it over them, or lord it over them, dominate them. And those in authority over them are called benefactors, patrons. But among you it shall not be so. Rather, let the greatest among you be as the youngest 
and the leader as the servant. For who is the greater, the one who sits at table or the one who serves? Is it not the one who sits at table? Yet I am among you as the one who serves. What can we who gather in the name of the prophetic King Jesus learn this spring morning from Luke's portrayal? I think we can make a start with the point made in Luke's second volume, the book of Acts, when at Pentecost, the same spirit that was poured out on Jesus at his baptism was poured out on all flesh, male and female, so that they also could be prophets. The prophetic mission of Jesus has been and still be carried forward by all believers. His prophetic mission does not demand that all of us march or protest or go to jail, but it does demand of each of us that what we profess, we put into practice, and that we put our body where our mouth is. We can start perhaps led by the Holy Spirit as Jesus was, by aligning our minds and hearts and even our bodies more with those who are mocked and despised by the elite than with the elite who are the chief mockers and despisers. We might thereby learn from the poor what it means to be poor, from those who grieve what it means to have grief, from those who are hungry, how hunger can diminish human dignity, from those who we mark as different suffer from stigma, and from the simple act of associating ourselves with the youngest and the weakest and the least attractive among us, all the little ones of the earth, we can turn our profession into practice and be members of the kingdom of God announced and embodied by Jesus. And from that point forward, we can expect to be shown by the Holy Spirit how we might even love our enemies and give to others without expecting a return and learn to be merciful to each other as our God is merciful to all God's creatures, not least, or perhaps above all, we ourselves. Thank you for your attention. We have a few minutes for questions, just a few minutes. Does anybody have a question up their sleeve? I have one up my sleeve, but I'd, be, I'd love to defer to you first. If there's a question that you have. Yes, there's a question over there. I'll bring the mic to the... That man is a stalker. He was following me. <laughs> <laughs> okay. So, uh, yes, I've enjoyed listening to you all of last week. Yeah. Um, and so I guess my question is, um, for lack of a better word, Jesus' primary antagonists were the temple elite. Is, is that right? And the message was 
even though they held power in terms of religion and political responsibility, it was him against them. His message of what they should have been doing, what they weren't doing, he was walking the talk in essence. Yeah, I think that's exactly right and it's, it remains astonishingly contemporary. I mean, there is, there is no question that um, in the world in which we live, there is a huge divide between those whom we quite, can quite legitimately call the elite um, in terms of wealth, power, prestige, cultural advantages, and so forth. It's not so much a racial thing as it is a, a, a cultural divide, an educational divide, an economic divide. And then there's always been the poor of the land. There's always been wealth and power. I think what Jesus challenges not so much in the disparity but in the disdain, in the refusal to see, in the, the contempt, even to regard those who are lowly as the enemy who must be resisted, as the threat to our position. And in Luke's gospel, this is really sort of the radical edge of his, not only what he says, but also what he does. So it's a very disturbing message. I'm so far from living it out that it would be laughable if it weren't tragic. But if we really take seriously this portrayal, then we have to at least start thinking our way somehow toward something like this. Well, for me, uh, my wife died about a year and a half ago, and, but this has uh, such uh, a vivid, practical uh, exemplification. We would come off uh, Freedom Parkway onto the connector, and of course there's always people there asking for money. And Joy, who was very much in decline in her last years, would say, Luke, give them something. And Joy, it's a scam. You know, Joy, they're making hundreds of dollars, you know, right? Uh, now I do. <laughs> and, and I realized that Joy was so much more profoundly a disciple than I was she would give to anybody under any circumstances with no questions. And I really represented that position of, okay, let me see your credentials, let me see, let me see your qualifications for me to care for you. And there's something reckless and dangerous about Jesus' message um, if it's really taken seriously. Yes. Could you repeat because my hearing is so awful. Could you give him the mic? I'm getting new hearing aids on Tuesday. I lost mine in Alabama. Do you know how much hearing aids cost? <laughs> yes, we do. It's staggering. dollars It's beyond belief. I get a new leg. <laughs> I was going to ask you to comment on the Romans, Pilate and Herod, and how they get off. 
relatively easily today in today's stories compared to the temple and the, and the religious leaders. Right. Well, I'm going to talk uh, tomorrow, as a matter of fact, if that could be a tease, um, about how, uh, but I think that in the gospel portrayal, there is no question that Jesus is executed by the Romans. This is, this is the one firm historical fact about Jesus, that he was killed by the Romans and that he was killed under the rubric of being a messiah, a king, a false messiah. That we know. The real mystery is how did he get from being opposed by Jewish leaders to being killed by um, a Roman emperor, uh, prefect. And that is what I'm going to talk about tomorrow. Because it, 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 the story as told by the synoptics is one of, uh, let's bring him down. And um, at one phase, let's trap him so that the Romans will come in and get him. And so we'll talk about paying taxes to Caesar tomorrow. And also, by what authority do you do these things? Uh, because uh, what we find there is a beautiful illustration of uh, truth speaking um, in a situation which is deeply and fundamentally deceitful. Um, and it's another aspect of prophecy. And it'll also get you nailed. So you heard it here first. Is there one more right here, Clark? I think if it's very brief, because I want to get people safely to church for soon, but, but Clark, if you, I know that you're a man of concern. Yes, I am. Uh, just briefly, then, the way you read that bit, the gospel, the Sermon on the Plain, it was so striking. Do you find that this is the way in which Luke is so different from Matthew? Yeah, absolutely. Mark and... Do we find any of that? Is that the big difference? It's, it's what, what happens in Luke's Sermon on the Plain, thank you for that excellent question, is that he, he reduces it to its ethical core. There's nothing there about prayer or you know, uh, divorce or all the other subjects that Matthew deals with. It's just basically, here's how you're supposed to live. And it's stark. Right, um, and it overturns all ancient and modern notions of how societies are supposed to run, and so it's a big challenge. Thank you. Well, I, you please do. <laughs> so that's right. That really is teeing it up. Tomorrow you can hear about death and taxes all in one go. Uh, the lunch series, it does begin at 12, and there's lunch provided, and it does end at 1, and we're very strict about it ending at 1 to, to respect people's need to get back on with their day. Please do uh, consider coming tomorrow. Thank you so much for being with us. 12 o'clock, we will see you here. Thank you. I'll be here. <laughs>